are on the line. Live on Fox Sports Central Alabama on 98.3 FM in Birmingham and Sylacauga and in Auburn on ESPN 1067 or online on FoxSports983.com and ESPNAU.com. You are on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Daw. Join the show by calling in at 334-321-1390 or toll free at 888-382-7000. You are on the line with Lance Dawn, Noah Gardner on ESPN 106.7 and Fox Sports Central Alabama. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Hope it's going great for everybody out there listening. If you want to call into the show, 334-321-1390 is the number to dial or text us at 334-564-1840. That is the ESPN 1067 text box. Noah, still up in Silicaga at the Mothership. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well, Lance. How are you, my man? Doing fantastic. Headed into this Tuesday afternoon, going to talk some college football, something that we kind of got to on yesterday's show, some questions we had for Auburn moving forward. Obviously, uh, if you watched on Saturday, you got to see homecoming, that Georgia State game, just a, uh, a heart attack essentially is what it was. Some questions for this football team moving forward, both on the offensive and defensive sides of the football. And there were just so many different miscues on Saturday that I feel like we can't help but ask questions about this team moving forward, right? I mean, you look on the offense, obviously Auburn's dealing with quarterback issues, who's going to be the starter. Defensively, there were some things that happened on Saturday that were just kind of out of the ordinary for this team, at least what we we, we think it's out of the ordinary. We've still got eight games to figure out what this defense is truly made of. But yeah, just a lot of questions moving forward for this football team, Noah. 100% correct, and I'm looking forward to digging into all that with you throughout this segment and throughout the rest of the show today, but I think the first question that I center in here on Auburn with is looking at the wide receiver coach position Mm -hmm. and Auburn deciding to move on from Cornelius Williams. How does that impact the locker room? How does that impact the wide receiver position? What unintended consequences arise from this? It's impossible to know, of course, the intentions behind it is to improve the position, improve the position's play, improve the position's communication and personnel movement onto the field. All of these things you're looking to improve, but you want to see what type of immediate impact it has. And does this group get better going into the game against LSU on Saturday? Because that is a major question staring Auburn in the face right now if they want to be able to beat a Power 5 program such as LSU. They may be down, but that does not mean that Auburn's just going to waltz into Death Valley and pull out an easy victory. Auburn's still going to have to play well. Absolutely, yeah. In terms of Mike Bobo's play calling, obviously there were some question marks against Penn State, but I feel like overall throughout the course of this season – It's been pretty consistent, and it's actually been pretty solid. It's just the receivers, and you talk about the communication between these guys so far. It just hasn't really been there. And I think when you look at this group right now, bringing in a new receivers coach to uh, to train these guys, the positive side of me wants to say that they do improve. They do get that communication going. They do line up and actually run their routes properly. And I would expect 
to see that moving forward, I think something that people forget about outside of Shed and Robertson, this is an incredibly experienced group, inexperienced group still. They've still got a lot of things that they have to figure out. Even Robertson coming into this program got here in the summer. He's still trying to learn everything, even though he's been in college for, show, for so long. I wonder with this new receivers coach and you talk about Auburn trying to take a step forward in, in the receiver room, just trying to get everything better. I wonder if this lineup adjusts at all because you you listen to Brian Harson talk about that uh, on Saturday after the game saying look we moved running backs around we moved receivers around we had to move the quarterback around but I wonder at the end of that game what got Auburn going was looking at Hudson looking at Canyon looking at the, these receivers that are not starters on this roster I wonder what this receiver room looks like moving forward and I'm not calling out just specifically Shed. I'm not calling out Javaris Johnson or Robertson, who didn't get to play on Saturday. I'm just saying, moving forward with this group, if there are things that are going to be adjusted, I think the lineup and who gets targets is, is also a question of mine. Of course. And you look at this past weekend, you saw a different group of receivers out there in crunch time. Elijah Canyon was out there on that last drive. Kalen Newton even made an appearance on that last drive. Kobe Hudson was targeted in the end zone. And then, of course, there was also still the familiar face of Shedra Jackson, who made what was the game-winning touchdown for Auburn. But you look across the board on Saturday, you saw some new faces that maybe you hadn't seen through the first three weeks as much. But we've seen every receiver play at some point whether it was in the Alabama State game where we saw Kayla Newton, who had a key drop. We've seen a lot of Kobe Hudson. He really started making a name for himself in the Penn State game. We've seen some Xavion Capers. We've seen a little bit of everybody, and I still think this coaching staff is trying to figure out who their group is, while also at the same time they've been relying on the more experienced players like Javarius Johnson, Shedrick Jackson, and Demetrius Robertson, you wonder if the door is opening a little bit for some of these younger players at the wide receiver position. There's just a lot of questions to be asked at this point. And I hope I'm not butchering the last name here, but the new receivers coach, Keesaw, I think is how it's pronounced. It seems like this is a move. It's a guy that Brian Harson is comfortable with. That automatically should improve communication from the top down, from Brian Harson, from Mike Bobo, to the receiver's position for what they are trying to get out of it that is clearly not at this point, they have clearly not gotten the results that they've wanted. No, they've not. They, 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 they haven't. I will say this about Canyon. I don't feel like he's gotten enough touches so far this season to see that catch that he made on the sideline late in that game. That's a guy that's been sitting on the bench for three games. How is he not out there, and how is Auburn not targeting him more often? We saw it in the bowl game last year. We saw it in the game late. When Finley was throwing to him, I want to see this kid get more touches. I think he's too talented to not to not get more touches moving forward. But yeah, a lot of questions about this receiver room and about Keysaw and how he's going to be able to to get communication between these guys and the chemistry going between these guys. Uh, is that all you want to touch on with the receiver room? Yeah, and then I want to branch off a side point. Another question that I think can be asked about this Auburn team moving forward is communication, right? because we're not just seeing it at the wide receiver position in right. connection with the quarterbacks. We're not just seeing it in connection there. We're also seeing it between the quarterbacks and the offensive line and the offensive linemen among each other. We're also seeing it on the defensive side of the football amongst the defensive backs that everyone maybe at this point 
isn't 100% clear on what's going on or they're making mistakes. Monday earlier today spoke with the media, and I feel like I've heard this a bajillion times from the defensive backs at this point this year. They say every week when we talk to a defensive back, well, we've just got to communicate better. Well, where does that begin and where does that start at? Right. Who does that start with? Right. Because Smoke Monday's the leader of this secondary, supposedly. And you've got a defensive coordinator that knows a thing or two about defensive backs. That's his specialty. That's what he played in college. I'm just trying to figure out where all of this newfound communication, where all of this improvement in communication, where it begins, who it begins with, and when it begins, because they're going to be tested by a pretty good passing offense. At LSU. Now, is it good enough to beat some of the best teams in the SEC? No, it's pretty much all they've got, considering the offensive line's not playing great, they're not running the ball effectively, and their defense is still average at best. But the passing game is good. They've got a good quarterback, knows his way around the pocket, made some really good throws against Mississippi State this past week. He's not averse to mistakes, but going into the game against Mississippi State this past weekend, Max Johnson had 20 touchdowns to three picks in his career. Those are pretty good numbers. Knows how to protect the football for the most part. But like I said, he's not averse to mistakes. He's just not making a ton of critical mistakes at this point in his career. And he's thrown a lot of touchdowns. He's a good quarterback, I think, in spite of how poor LSU has played around him. Offensive line has not been good while he's been there. He's had a revolving door wide receiver last year. Loses his best target midway through the year. Then Kayshawn Boutte steps up. He's having to build new relationships with these guys. He doesn't have a running game behind him, and his defense has been average, and he still found a way to beat one of the best teams in the country last year at their place in Florida, right? So Max Johnson's good. The passing game's good. Auburn's secondary is going to be tested. When does this communication actually improve? Because we've been hearing it every week. And we've been hearing it from these players, and I I think with this defense – you look at what happened in the first half against Georgia State. I think it's from the top down. Like you mentioned with Keesaw and the receivers and Brian Harson. I think you start with Derek Mason, and he's not the only issue. I think you look down all the way to what these players are doing during plays on the field after plays are getting called. I think Mason moving, and I, again, like I said on yesterday's show, I don't believe this is, I don't know if this is true, but I believe that he stepped down from his, his, uh, his box to, to actually coach on the field and call plays. If, if Mason is going to help communicate, and the, the secondary is going to help communicate. If they're saying they're going to do that, then they should be able to do it. And we saw it in the second half against Georgia State. I want to see it against a really good LSU passing attack like you mentioned, Noah. I want to see them go out there and not just get the play calls in quicker, which I think has been an issue so far this season, but I want to see them actually line up in the right positions and play correctly. If you're going to continue to talk about with, with not, not only these players, but this coaching staff, you know, just, just getting better, improving day by day, one and a blah, 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 then go out there and actually do it. You're going to get an opportunity to do it this Saturday against LSU. I saw it in the second half against Georgia State. I'm really, I'm not down on this team. I'm still optimistic, but you have to go out there and yield results. You can't just talk off the field about what you're going to do. You have to actually go and prove it on the field. So that is a question. What does this defensive back room do in order to improve that communication? Well, and I also don't think that communication was at its best in Happy Valley. Now, was it a major concern I guess that just depends on who you talk to and whatnot because there was a ton of blown coverage from the secondary 
on the offensive side of the ball, was there a lot of issues with communication? I just think that that's natural going to a place like Happy Valley and how loud that place was because it's legit. But here's the thing. Death Valley's right up there, if not more daunting of a place to play in, depending on the time of day. 8 p.m., you might be a little bit better off with how late it's going to be and folks getting tired. So maybe it won't be as crazy as what it was in Happy Valley a couple weeks ago. But we all know this. On average, nine times out of ten, Death Valley is a much more daunting place to play than Penn State. And this LSU team, may it may be easier to get that crowd out of the ball game because you are playing a worse LSU team than you typically face in Baton Rouge. But nonetheless, this is still an incredibly hostile environment. It will be at 8 p.m., whether it was 8 p.m., 6 p.m., 2.30 p.m., 11 a.m. Whenever LSU plays, it's an incredibly hostile environment. They're going to be loud. They're going to be proud. And if you don't have your communication at all levels, all the way from the top down, you're going to have issues on the road in Death Valley on Saturday night against LSU. That's something that they're going to have to have hammered out. I know, once again, they're going back to practicing with noise and all that. And it's not the noise in of itself that I think is a major issue for Auburn because you face that every year. Every team faces noise and loud environments. It's more of you personally and what you're doing inside your program and what all of these players and all these coaches, how they're interacting with each other and if they are doing it smoothly or if they're still kind of going through the motions. And maybe a couple weeks ago and even this past week against Georgia State, they're still kind of going through the motions, at least from a pass coverage standpoint. That has to change this week against LSU for Auburn to take the next step. We'll see if they can do that. In the past, when you look at history, and again, history's not the best measuring stick when it comes to picking a game. If it was, everybody would be winning if they wanted to bet on a game. But you look at history and what it says in this matchup, and history says since 1999, LSU has come out on top regardless of how much better they they might have been against Auburn. This, you mentioned how tough of an environment this is is going to be a really difficult test for Auburn because if we're talking about this communication getting better, it's going to be difficult to try and improve in, in, in such an environment as Death Valley. It's just going to be really difficult. And like you mentioned, it's not just the defense. It's not just the secondary. It's also the offensive line. It's, like the re- it's also with the receivers, as, as we mentioned earlier. It's with everybody. Everybody's got to go out there, and they've got to communicate in such a hostile environment is that everything you want to touch on with communication? Well, you just mentioned the offensive line, and I want to go back to the last play that T.J. Finley threw that touchdown pass on to Shedrick Jackson. Georgia State brought five. How in the world did two guys get in the backfield? That's communication, knowing who you're going to pick up. Auburn should not get beat in the trenches, and maybe they did get beat. you got to go back and watch the play. I think it's a little bit of both. I think Georgia State ran a little bit of a stunt, a, a delayed blitz there from one of the linebackers who was able to get into the backfield but two guys ended up there that were about to sack tj finley right how did that happen because either auburn just got beat up front or they just didn't block somebody and to me with the how fast it broke down looked like they just didn't block somebody or they didn't do a very good job of it for very long so the offensive line is another area where i think from a pass protection standpoint and cole kublik has been very critical of Auburn's tackles at this point. Not the interior. I think the interior's done a great job at run blocking. I don't think we've seen too many breakdowns 
between the guards and the center position. I think that's been strong. And we know how much Cole Kubelik likes Nick Brahms. We've seen him in some of his rankings, how well he's played. And then coming into the year, I know he was one of his top centers, but he's been very critical of tackles. Cole Kubelik knows offensive linemen. You look at the tackle play for Auburn, at least in terms of pass protection, I think that's where you're seeing some of the breakdowns right now. Auburn's going to have to step it up there. Is it communication? Are they just getting beat? They're playing some. They're playing a team that has some excellent pass rushers on it. There's going to be some pressure on whoever's playing quarterback, which is the next question, right? The most, Maybe the most important question of, of them all at this point is who's playing quarterback on Saturday. Right, and when you look at the quarterback and the relationship between the offensive line it was also a major issue on Saturday against Georgia State, the communication. You saw, I believe it was Auburn's first offensive play from scrimmage. They line up, they've got two receivers on the left side, and Georgia State literally has nine players in the box. And you would think if Bonix has as much flexibility as he does in this offense, and if you think that he is communicating better, and we talked about it during the offseason, having the answers to the test. You look, you've got nine guys in the box, and you're lining up to run the ball. What do you do? You check out of it, and you throw the swing pass to Javaris Johnson. Instead, it's bringing Johnson in motion, and then there are ten guys for Auburn in the box, and you bring Johnson over to the right side, and you run the ball, and it gets stuffed at the line of scrimmage. And you saw that time and time and time again on Saturday when Auburn would be outnumbered in the box, and Georgia State would just come downhill, and they would make tackles. If you're going to communicate as a quarterback, and you're going to get this offense moving you have to be able to realize that it's simple it's just counting it's looking up it's counting it's making your checks before pre-snap and it's making those adjustments if Auburn is going to actually stand a chance against LSU both in passing situations and running the ball they have to have somebody under under center that understands how to make checks at the line of scrimmage, and how to communicate with the offensive line. Because like you said, the tackles have not been phenomenal. The interior has been good, but the offensive line may have a difficult time in such a hostile environment. Well, I'll add to that a little bit. We don't know how much power these quarterbacks have when they come to the line of scrimmage because not many quarterbacks get the responsibility, get the privilege to be able to come up to the line of scrimmage and get the trust from their coaches to be able to come up to the line of scrimmage and make decisions like that to where they may get to alter the play. A lot of times that's where you see the offensive line, the quarterbacks, everybody stands up, looks towards the sideline, and they get a new play in, right? And the the point is still, the message is still the same. I don't know if I'd put that all in the quarterback position, but the message is still the same. If the other team is stacking the box against you knowing that what you want to do is run the football, you have to be able to do other things. I put it on Nick's because he did it last year. He, he made checks at the line last year. That was something Malzahn let him do in year two. And I know it's in a new offense this season. It's not all on the coaching staff, and I agree. It's not all on the quarterback. But we've if we've seen Nick's do it in his second year going into his third, he should be able to either make those checks or go to the sideline and say, hey, should we make this check? It's It's about communication with everybody. Yeah, and, and I'm not saying that you're wrong. I'm just saying we don't know what that we don't know what this coaching staff conveys to the quarterback position, what their total responsibilities are on their are, are on the field. At least I I'm not aware of it at, at this point. But I mean, you may be right. He may, he may have that, and he probably should be. You know, but I'm just saying that the message is still the same. What you're saying, the message is still the same. Auburn has to be able to do more things than just run the football because opposing squads are going to stack the box against Auburn. And Auburn has to be able to open it up a little bit to be able to accent the rushing attack and not jeopardize its effectiveness too. Because when you get into SEC play, Auburn's not going to be able to run the ball 
for 200 yards a game and still win some football games. Right, absolutely. And again, I'm not saying that Nix has that power this season. Like I said, I know he's got a new scheme and Mike Bobo is probably bringing in a lot of new things and he's just kind of going to control what happens in that environment. And like you said, it's about the message from everybody. Everybody's got to be able to communicate because you, like you said, can't, you can't line up and just expect to run the ball at will every single play. Auburn from the top down, is they've got to be able to talk with each other better. On the other side of this break, we're going to get to our Saturday takeaways, break down some of the games that we saw over the weekend. Stick with us. Back on the line, Lance Dawn, Noah Gardner here with you on ESPN 106.7 and Fox Sports Central Alabama. You want to call in, give your thoughts on what happened on Saturday, 334-321-1390. If you want to talk about what you think is going to happen this Saturday against LSU, call in, give your thoughts. Want to get to our Saturday takeaways here real quick. Georgia, Vanderbilt, top of our list. Georgia, the victors, 62 to nothing. It was a game that the Bulldogs just absolutely ran away with. It was it was absolutely <laughs> disgusting. Uh, before we take a dive into it, though, we do want to get to the phone lines, 334-321-1390. And Travis is on the line with us. What's up, Travis? Guys, how y'all doing today? Doing great. How are you doing? Uh, been better, man. <laughs> I'll tell you the truth. Uh, I mean, y'all have heard enough of my calls by now to know that I like to consider myself an optimistic fan. Right. I like to view glasses, you know, half full, not half empty. But I, I, I'm getting close to a breaking point, guys. i got to be honest with you. I mean, look. I understand what a trap game is. When you're trying to look ahead, you got a big game in Death Valley, you're coming off a tough loss in another hostile environment. I understand what a trap game is, boys. But, you know, Georgia State, I mean, they're one and two. It's not like they were a top team at their level of play. I mean, right. they're they're a below-average team at best at their level. Uh, you know, our quarterback play was, was brutal. Our offensive line still can't protect in the passing game. Defense still can't get a pass rush. Uh, you know, secondary can't cover, or receivers are average. I, I mean, do y'all realize that we scored two offensive touchdowns against Georgia State on homecoming? And, I mean, we didn't yep. even have the 11 a.m. kickoff time to blame it on this week. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, from the top down, like we were talking about in the first uh, first segment there. Just no communication uh, in a lot of different places. Of course, the defense adjusted in the second half, but like you mentioned, the offense – uh, only two touchdowns, and it was just a bunch of field goals and then a couple of special teams plays, and then that pick six there to ice it. Yeah, and, you know, as far as Bo Nix goes, the guy, he still can't figure it out. I I believe at this point in his career, it's fair to say that he is uncoachable. Can we agree on that? I mean, his, he was coddled in high school. He had his daddy coaching in the Pinson Valley where, you know, he was faster than just about everybody on the field. And then, you know, he comes to Auburn as a true freshman, Gus, chooses him to start over Malik Willis, who might be the number one quarterback off the board in this year's draft. And, you know, he's had more chances to develop than any other quarterback in the country, and he still just doesn't have it. I understand about, you know, him having decent, different offense coordinators and maybe Gus is calling plays and, you know, whoever else. But, guys, he's had – I mean, think about all the starts that he's had. I mean, day one starter, he goes in and beats Oregon – and then, you know, you've gotten a couple of good games from him, but it seems like Auburn has won in spite of Bo Nix. Uncoachable, I don't know if I'm there yet, but we've certainly right. seen through three years now uh, Nix has not really been able to figure it out. I think it's been a litany of issues outside of him as well, 
but I agree with you. He, uh, as a quarterback, you know, for, for two years now, I've expected, okay, we're going to see a different Bo Nix this year. Okay, we're going to see a different Bo Nix this year. And and uh, he's just not been able to take that step forward. Yeah, and just to add to that, I don't want to ever call a player uncoachable because I don't. I think his attitude's there. I, I think he's got – I think he's trying. I think he's putting the effort in, right? I mean, all these – different coaches talk about that. I think he's got the attitude there to want to get better, to want to improve. And I think that's more about coachability. But if you're talking about ability, yes, I do think it is fair to question two and a half years now, almost into his career, whether or not this is, uh, whether or not he's the guy. And that's why you're at a fork in the road right here with TJ Finley and Bo Nix. Uh, yeah, and speaking on that, you know, and I think I thought TJ did some good things. I mean, of course, you know, you lead a 98-yard drive. I mean, that, that's impressive on anybody, um, especially coming off cold off the bench like that. But, uh, you know, guys, I mean, go, as far as the game this week, I, I as much as I hate to say it, I think you got to start Bo Nix. I just – I don't trust TJ Finley because, guys, think about the hours of practice film they have on this guy. They know all of his tendencies. They know just about everything there is to know about TJ Finley. And, you know – I can't remember exactly when he transferred, but you don't overcome those those tendencies in the short time that he's been at Auburn. So I just don't know if he's the answer for this week. I'm not saying for the rest of the season. I'm saying going too bad, you know, his emotions are going to be high. And, and, you know, for a young player, he's still only a sophomore. And, you know, I, I just I don't think that would be the, the answer for this week. I think that's something that not not enough people have touched on, what you said there about Finley and what this LSU team knows about him. It, I, it, based on the conversations that Noah and I have had here, I feel like, and I don't want to speak for Noah, but I'm leaning, like you said, towards Knicks to start this season, or to start this weekend, rather, excuse me, on a short leash. And you have Finley as the backup in, in case some, in case things get get bad early. But yeah, I don't know how confident I am with this quarterback room. Period. But I don't know how confident I am in Finley throwing him into the fire in Death Valley late against his former team because, like you mentioned, they know a lot about the kid. Yeah, and you know, also the DBs. I mean, how many times have they seen him drop back? And you know, they know just about everything. You know, they know where he's going to go with the ball before he does. You know, I mean, you talking about thousands of reps, you know, summer, spring, fall count, and then, you know, throughout the season of him being the starting quarterback for a majority of the time last year. But, uh, guys, you know, lastly, it, it, as far as the Cornelius Williams firing, uh, if he if he got fired because of the play of his position group and the development, then, you know, Mike Bobo, Derek Mason, Zach Etheridge, Nick Eason, Will Friend, shouldn't they all be fired as well? Uh, you know, that's just something that I don't agree with, and I don't, I don't like this making an example out of somebody. I don't agree with that as well, because I mean, if that's how you're gonna play it, then, then you know, everybody should be fired except for you know, probably Brad Bedell, Cadillac, and Jeff Smetty. Well, and I just don't think that we know what what it was because coach you know obviously in a press conference media availability and you can you know you can only take this so far but i just we don't know why the move was made i don't think we'll ever know so i'm not not jumping to conclusions there but travis thanks for the call my man we gotta head to a quick break on the other side of this break we continue to talk about uh, our saturday takeaways from the weekend and we'll get back to this conversation i do want to kind of continue it stick with us Lance Dawn, Noah Gardner here with you. Before we get to our Saturday takeaways, 
I want to get back to the conversation that Travis was having about Cornelius Williams and how if he was let go, then why don't why doesn't Derek Mason get let go? Why doesn't Will Friend get let go? Why don't these other coaches in these position groups that have not been performing well, why don't we just go ahead and cut them off? I want to get your thoughts on this, Noah, because according to what Harson said in his press conference, he was Williams was not the scapegoat. This was not a firing of someone to make a statement on the whole team. This was not, a, oh, team's not performing. Somebody gets let go. Let's spin a wheel and see who gets let go. This was a very much so the product that was being put on the field was not, was not good. It was not up to standard. And you saw, if you're on Twitter, if you're, if you're, if you're just paying attention, scrolling through, you've seen, you might have seen it. There were multiple instances, and even Harson mentioned this, there was multiple in- instances where there were only 10 players on the field on Saturday and a receiver was not out there and lined up where he should have been. There should have been a, a receiver out there as the 11th player. So I don't necessarily know if it was a scapegoat situation and Harson was trying to make a sa- statement, number one, because he said he wasn't. And number two, the product that we've seen from the receivers so far, we talked about communication to open the show, it's just not been there. And a lot of that comes back with, uh, to coaching. I'm interested to get your thoughts, Noah, because I, 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 I don't know. I think a lot of Auburn fans are kind of steering in that direction, and I just don't know if that's truly what happened. And I don't think we'll ever know, and I know that's probably not the answer that you or a lot of people would want to hear here, but we're not in that. We're not in those meetings. We're not inside the complex, and so there's no way to know. But I'll say this. Sometimes just things don't work out. Sometimes it's – Uh, You know, sometimes the fit doesn't doesn't sometimes it's just not a great fit, you know, and I don't know if that's the case here. I don't want to, you know, comment and say that's one thing that it actually really wasn't that that it was something else. So, like, I don't think that we will know, you know, and I think it may be it, it may be even an overstep to jump just to a conclusion to say that he was let go because the position group wasn't performing to you know what wasn't performing because as Travis said you look around there were a ton of other position groups that weren't that aren't performing at this point namely the secondary you know the offense has not looked good the last two weeks I mean he he named all those coaches you know and at this point I think you look across the board for Auburn every single position group is not performing at least this past weekend they did not perform to where you wanted them to not a single one did I'll, I'll even say the running backs didn't quite reach the level that I wanted to see them at. I think they, you know, they, they weren't breaking off huge runs like they typically do, you know, and granted the offensive line didn't, you know, do them any favors. And this isn't me talking about, about the, the running backs. I'm just saying everybody's at fault. Everybody still needs to get better. And that's kind of me echoing some of what Brian Harson said in his press conference after the ball game it was like Auburn football has to improve, right? Has to get better each and every day. And, you know, we're not going to know why that move was made. But I, you have to believe that it was made for, for a reason and that it, it wasn't, you know, based on what we know from what Harson said during his press conference, it's made for a reason. It's made to help the position group improve. It's made to help this offense improve. It's made to help this team improve. That's pretty much all we know. Right, and that's, I'm not saying that it's for one reason or another, right? Yeah. I'm just saying that we can't look at what Harson said and say, you know, there were multiple instances where, where things were not happening the way that they should have. And I'm not just out here throwing people under the bus and firing them just because, just to make a statement. I mean, like you said, things sometimes just don't work out. And the whole point of letting Williams go and, and letting Keesaw step in is to improve this receiver room. So I don't necessarily think it's, it's, it's 
throwing everybody under the bus and letting people go just because just because because Brian Harson said it wasn't. And I, I, I believe I believe that's true. I believe I take his word for that. And while the performance might not have been there for other position groups this weekend, sure, like Travis said, the argument can be made. Well, why don't you throw somebody else under the bus? Why don't you fire them? Well, again, we're not just doing it just because we're doing it to try and and improve and I just it's not logical to start firing everybody four games into a season. Obviously they looked at this this what's going on with the receivers right now and they said it's just not working out with this specific group right now. We're gonna move on. We're gonna promote another guy. And again, we're not gonna truly know really what happened behind the scenes. We can guesstimate at it, but my point being is, you know, based on what Harson said, I don't think they're doing it just to do it. I think he's a very much so a very meticulous detail-oriented guy that's serious and he's focused on things like this and this is a move that this coaching staff made in, in seriousness 100 percent, i agree with that i want to move on to our saturday takeaways now i wanted to get into this georgia game because they looked incredibly dominant against 62 to nothing noah overarching thoughts from this game how has this vanderbilt program even reached this low like this <laughs> this point that's not me making a joke that's a serious question i know that makes kind of sound funny but like that's a serious question because we talk about this being an sec program but you look at vanderbilt last year they really weren't competitive against anybody against anybody and say it was 2020 whatever they moved on from their coach but this year they're fairly competitive they beat colorado state by three sure but I, I, you look outside, they lost by 20 to an FCS program. That doesn't sound anything like an SEC school at this point. And I'm not saying, you know, and I, know a lot, I know a lot of jokes are being made recently that, you know, kick them out of the league or anything like that. I don't think that's a good decision either. I think they offer the league a lot, at least in baseball at this point. And mm-hmm. you'd like to believe that basketball will get back to where it, they want to be at and where they used to be at about 10 years ago. But I just... I'm shocked as to see that an SEC program, I know it's Vanderbilt, and we're kind of used to them being the the worst team in the league every year, but I'm just shocked to see that an SEC program with all the resources and you think the clout that you would get from playing in the SEC could reach this low. Like if Vanderbilt comes knocking and they're recruiting, and it, like Vanderbilt should be able to win recruits against a group of five programs, you'd think. I mean, sure, maybe a Boise State, if somehow they were in a recruiting battle with a Boise State or, or you know, a Cincinnati or UCF, yeah, those programs are more attractive locations than Vanderbilt because those programs are winning and they're going to be in the top 25. They're going to play more meaningful football games than Vanderbilt will. But I just find it so shocking that that program, being an SEC school, could reach this low where it, it looks like there should be a running clock after the first quarter. Right. So you think that this is less of a Georgia being just do- and completely dominant, even though they were, and this is more of a uh, Vanderbilt, how could you stoop this low point? I mean, Georgia looks great, too. Right. But, and and they, they honestly should have done what they did. And, and, and this is just one takeaway that I have from this. It's hard for me to glean anything from Georgia at the moment. Mm-hmm. I think they're the best team in this co- in the country. But they only beat Clemson 10-3, to and when we reveal our on-the-line rankings on tomorrow's show, you'll find out that I didn't rank Clemson this week. 
Clemson looks like they could struggle to seven and five, eight and four at this point with the way their offense is doing. I mean, DJ Ungalele had was twelve for twenty six on Saturday against NC State. These are supposed to be the games that Clemson strolls through, and they are struggling tremendously. So Georgia only won that game by seven. Only scored one. Only scored three points in that game. Didn't even score an offensive touchdown. So what do we really know about Georgia right now? Because all they've played is South Carolina, UAB, and Vanderbilt. So they played the two worst teams in their division, and then they played UAB, and sure, they torched each one of those teams, but all three of those teams don't hold a candle as far as talent is concerned to Georgia. So I don't, you know, I think Georgia, with how like jarring it is to see them do what they did to Vanderbilt, like that's impressive, but Alabama probably would have done the same thing. So the other side of this is, I just want to go back to, I don't think we know enough about Georgia yet to say that these guys are, you know, I, and I know they're still ranked number two, but I, I think we were talking on yesterday's show about an SEC hierarchy. And then not that long ago, we talked about the top 25 rankings and whether or not Alabama is still the number one team in the country and whatnot. It's just, I, I Georgia hasn't played anybody yet. Not, not, not enough umph there for me for to, to be sold that this Georgia team is, going to win the national title or that they are far and above everyone else. And that that's not something that's being talked about a ton. I don't know if there's a ton of people out there saying that Georgia's that far ahead of everybody else, but you kind of get this vibe that Georgia's just steamrolling through everybody and everybody else is struggling. But just look at the schedule. I, I think that they're that win over Clemson's not nearly as impressive as it looked after week one. Well, they're going to get what I think is a relatively tough opponent this weekend in Arkansas. They do get them at home, and I want to look at this Arkansas A&M game, and then I want to take a look at this Arkansas-Georgia matchup. But you look at this Arkansas team, this is a team that we didn't expect a whole lot out of heading into this season. They've already beaten two top 15 teams. Now, whether or not those two programs are currently top 15 in the country, I think it's pretty clear that that, that they're, they're either on the verge or they're not. But you look at this matchup, against Arkansas and A&M this weekend. And A&M, I feel like they had opportunities to get into this game against Arkansas, and the game plan was not there. They just didn't stray away from it. Arkansas was able to get pressure on Zach Calzada, did not have the best day through the air. It took a couple of chunk plays early, very similar to what happened against Texas for, for Arkansas, a couple of chunk plays early. And uh, they were able to hold on to the lead. I think this Arkansas team is talented, but A&M right now, with Jimbo Fisher trying to troubleshoot being down and struggling against teams with a backup quarterback, they've just not looked good. I mean, the defenses look great, but the offense, they've not figured things out. And it's weird to me that Isaiah Spiller only got 12 carries in this game. And an A&M, without truly a, a, a legitimate passing threat right now, they weren't able to establish the run or even try to run it more. It was just confusing to me. But Arkansas got it done. What are your thoughts from this game? A&M's problems extend beyond the quarterback position. Now, I think the defense is good. They gave up 20 to Arkansas really after a couple of blown plays early on because Arkansas jumped out to 14-0 to right away. After that, A&M defense buttoned it up, held them to 20 points, you're not going to turn your nose against holding a good SEC team. And I think we know enough to say that Arkansas is a good SEC team, but are they a top 10 team in the country? What we traditionally would think a top 10 team in the country is. I don't think we even know that yet at this point because of the state of the two Texas teams when they played them or the two top 15 borderline top 10 Texas teams when they played them. Texas has made a quarterback change 
since those two teams played. And it was made because of how poor Hudson Card played against Arkansas. And Sarkeesian talked about that and said basically, like, look, in practice, like, or or when the game starts for Casey Thompson, like the light bulb turns on. Okay. Like he, like the lights turn on, like, like when the bullets start flying, Casey Thompson, like he is the guy, but they went with Hudson card to start the year, I guess, based on what they saw in practice, based on what they saw throughout the spring. And they give the freshmen a chance. But what we found out when the bullets started flying for Hudson card, it, it was not the same. It was not a similar type of a result from what you got from Casey Thompson. That game was over midway through the third quarter. And then there was no coming back for AM. It, it kind of looked like they gave up a little bit. And then you see the Texas team that we've gotten the last two weeks. And Texas threw up 70 points this past week. Granted, it was against Texas Tech, but you can see the offense is in a different place than where it was with Hudson Card, even, even in the one game prior to Texas playing Arkansas when they played Louisiana Lafayette. So Texas is a vastly different team at this point. And I think Arkansas got Texas when they were vulnerable. I think Texas is a much better team now with who they've got at quarterback. But then you also look at Texas A&M and they get to playing with a backup. And I've been talking about this. I've been forecasting this. I've been projecting this for a while. When we saw Haynes King go down, remember, we talked about that A&M Colorado game. I said, this is going to be a close football game. I even picked Colorado to win it. And they almost did it. A&M has been dealing with problems for a very long time. And it extends on that offense beyond the quarterback position. I don't think the offense is run blocking as effective as they were last year. Hence why they may have decided to have only given Isaiah Spiller like 12 carries, like you said, because maybe they question whether or not they could win up front against Arkansas. A&M's questions extend beyond the quarterback position. And that's shocking considering the plethora of skill position players that they have coming back. But I go back to what I said in the offseason. Skill position players coming back alone, that is not enough. You need an offensive line. You need a quarterback. Just look at Auburn last year. They had receivers. They had a great running back. They had skill positions hammered down. What was the issue? Offensive line, quarterback. What'd you get? You got a you got an average season. And that was and that was enough to for Malzahn to no longer be the head coach. So AM's dealing with some stuff right now that I don't think are going to get fixed. Right. And I think as far as these skill position players, I think it extends past them and into this coaching staff because again, the play calling, while the sure the run blocking might not have been there, Spiller still aver- it still had that sixty seven yard touchdown run in the third quarter, and they just kind of abandoned him. They're like, oh, shoot, we figured it out one play. Nah, let's not, let's not give him really another chance. And then Weidermeyer, one of the best tight ends in the SEC, didn't get a catch until the third quarter. He only had four targets the entire game. And sure, Arkansas's defense may be good, but to not at least try some th- different things and to stick with the game plan that A&M had, I mean, sure, the offensive line has not been performing well, and it's not been great in run blocking, and they're dealing with a backup quarterback, but... They're, I don't feel like AM's really handling their situation as well as they could be right now. And I'm not trying to take away credit from Arkansas. Props to them. Like you said, I think they're a good SEC team. They've been able to go out and they've been able to get it done every single game so far this year. But AM has, has just been really confusing to me. And I wonder, with, without a quarterback and with all these different issues extending outside of him, how they are going to survive SEC play. Yeah, they they have a long road ahead of them still in in the league, and they still got to play Auburn. They still got to play Alabama. They still have to play LSU. They they have a long road ahead of them. Still got to play Ole Miss. I think they'll make a bowl game, but A and M in my hierarchy, I had them at six yesterday. 
And that's where I projected them in the preseason. I'm still sticking to that at this point. Mississippi State, I think, is going to give them a tough game. But I want to I want to talk about Arkansas just for a second before we go to break. K.J. Jefferson was 7 for 15 for 212 yards and two touchdowns. Two of his seven completions were touchdowns. They were, I think, tremendous plays. Once again, you go back and see them. They were tremendous plays by receivers. They were. Green and Traylon Burks, they both made tremendous plays. Not that they weren't great throws, but look at the entire body of work from K.J. Jefferson. And he was seven for 15. Now, AM's got a good defense, but I asked you this question going into this game last week, and it was actually one of the reasons why I thought AM was actually going to be able to win this game, but maybe I put too much trust into the AM offense that they would at least be able to find enough points to win this game. I was right on that it would be defensive. I just kind of got the, I had the score inverted. I thought it would be 20 to 10 AM or like 17 to 10 AM. These receivers are playing great for Arkansas, but I still question this weekend what does that passing game look like? If Arkansas's quarterback goes seven for fifteen against Georgia, what do you think that that score looks like, Lance? It's probably Georgia by fourteen to seventeen points, or more. It could be more. Uh, I just I, I don't think I go back to looking at the Arkansas schedule at this point. They got Texas and Texas A and M at times where they were extremely vulnerable, and I'm still going to give them credit for the wins. They were top twenty five wins. There were wins against teams that have better recruits than they do. And you got to give a lot of credit to what Sam Pittman's building. They're 4-0. They're going to go to a bowl game. Probably going to finish as an 8 or a 9-win team this year. Things are in, in trending in an awesome direction for Arkansas. And you can't help but be happy for the guy because you can tell that he loves the program. He loves his job. He loves his players. And he's putting a tremendous amount of effort, heart, and love into this job. And I love to see that. But I still question how far this quarterback play takes him. On the other side of this break, we wrap up our num our number one of the show. Wrapping up our number one of On the Line, Lance Gaughan, Noah Gardner here with you on ESPN 106.7 in Fox Sports Central Alabama. If you want to call in, give your thoughts on this week's matchup for Auburn against LSU. You want to give your thoughts on what's going on in the SEC? Call in 334-321-1390. Would love to get your thoughts here on the show, Noah, wrapping up our number one, I want to go back real quick to this Arkansas-Georgia matchup. You may disagree with me here, but I think this Arkansas offensive line, based on the way that they've been able to run the ball consistently this year against Georgia's defensive line, which has a, not only a fantastic pass rush, but has been able to stop the run pretty consistently this year, may be one of the best matchups that we get in the entire SEC throughout the course of this season. I think it's going to be really fun to watch. I think you definitely can look at it. I think it definitely looks that way or appears that way on the surface, but I do still have major questions. And I was actually thinking about this during the break. So I'm actually really happy you went here. I still have massive questions about whether or not Arkansas can actually line it up in between the tackles and beat Georgia because Arkansas's game, just look at how they've won. And you just brought, you just broke it down the way that they've won is they ran the football. Their quarterback only had 15 pass attempts this past weekend. They obviously don't want to air it out. It is about everything between the tackles. You go back to the Texas game, you go to this A&M game, everything that they want to do is about getting downhill, running the football, and being more physical than you. That will not work against what Georgia has in the trenches. And that's why I think this weekend goes very poorly for Arkansas. Are you thinking 17 or more? I'm not asking you to put a final score on this. The line is currently at 18 and a half. Do you think Georgia covers? 18 and a half. Wow, I didn't think it would be that large. Yeah, I do. 
or it'll be very or if they don't it'll still be like 17 yeah i think it's somewhere i right now if i had to pick it it's probably going to sit somewhere around there and again you look at this arkansas team it's on the road it's early like you said based on the way that georgia's been playing defense so far i just don't know if arkansas is going to be able to hang out again that's not saying that arkansas is a bad team but they've got their work cut out for them and it's going to be tough uh, for, for Arkansas to even hang, I think, for the entire game against Georgia this weekend. That's going to do it for our number one of the show. On the other side of this break, we get to our Making Headlines segment. Later on the show, we take a look at the AP Top 25, and we continue our Saturday takeaways. Stick with us. Live on Fox Sports Central Alabama on 98.3 FM in Birmingham and Sylacauga and in Auburn on ESPN 1067 or online on foxsports983.com and ESPNAU.com. You are on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Daw. Join the show by calling in at 334-321-1390 or toll free at 888-382-7500. Hour number two of On the Line, Lance Dawn, Noah Gardner here with you on ESPN 106.7 in Fox Sports Central Alabama. Really good hour number one there. If you missed any of it, go and find the podcast wherever you get your podcast. Had a fantastic show yesterday, by the way. I can't get over how fun the show was yesterday. Really appreciate all the calls we got. And if you want to call in 334-321-1390, you want to give your thoughts on Auburn's quarterback situation, the game this weekend, anything across sports, we want to hear from you. Again, 334-321-1390. Want to get into our Making Headlines segment here. We do this every single day normally. Uh, start of the second hour. Headline number one, things have gone from bad to worse for the Clemson Tigers. They've lost a defensive player to a torn ACL, leaving the Tigers without their starting defensive tackles. I'm not going to butcher his name because I'm, I'm an idiot. Bressy? Yeah, that's what I'm going with. Brian Bressy. I was going to go with Breesy, so I was close. Yeah, it's about the same. Brian Breesy, Brian Bressy, whatever you want to call him. He is out for the season with a torn ACL, and while Clemson has been struggling, I feel like almost more on the offensive side of the ball. This is a huge blow to be without both their starting defensive tackles. Well, this is their best defensive player as well. So um, the interior of this defense just got a lot softer, not to say anything about the two guys coming in. I mean, it's just that that is now going to be a weaker point of the line than they originally anticipated it being. But the thing is about this is, is the, is the first part of your statement. Things have gone from bad to worse for Clemson. They have. That they're dealing with injuries. They've got a, another guy out. Shipley's out for three to four weeks for him. He'll be back. That's one of their running backs. He'll be back, though, in three to four weeks. So that, at least that's not the season. But this division got easier overnight and then, like, tougher again. Like, uh, from a week-to-week basis, this division is just, like, up and down. We all saw after week one, we're like, oh, maybe Florida State's better this year. NC State just clobbered USF. Oh, Clemson's going to have some competition. You know, we're all like, yeah, this is going to be good. But now, like, the teams have changed. We know that Florida State's horrible. They're 0-4. That, that is not redeemable at this point, I don't think. And then Louisville's getting a little bit better. 
NC State just beat Clemson, so they actually kind of did the thing. That, you know, they gave Clemson the loss that just took them out of playoff contention, or at least what we think will be. And then you look over and you see that um, Wake Forest is ranked this week. I talked about that last week, how I said, you know, if these guys play really well against Virginia, then maybe we should be looking at them for the top 25. They enter the polls much quicker than I would have thought. I thought that we would have saw Maryland ranked by now, who I know is not an ACC team. But if we were talking about teams that were on the fringe that are impressing me, that are playing above their weight class at this point, I thought Maryland would have been in the polls this week as they play Iowa. I talked about that like two weeks ago. But you get two undefeated teams squaring off of that game. That's a little bit of a under-the-radar Big Ten game this week. I actually think that may be a Friday night game. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong there. Is it a Friday night game? I'm not sure. I'd have to go look. But – you look around this this uh, this division, this Atlantic division, and I was just looking just now. If you're looking for a potential one of the best games of the year, look at the end of the season. Boston College is undefeated. Wake Forest is undefeated. Yeah. You look at that potentially being at the end of the year, the, the game that decides the Atlantic division, it's in Boston College. Just throwing that out there. That could be fun. But, yeah, this division has just not been, uh, been impressive overall. I, I, again, it's not fun to pick winners – in September of like divisions and playoff stuff like that. But right now I'm not necessarily asking for power rankings, but if you had to guess who's going to come out on top in this division, just a wild guess, who would you pick? I really like this Wake Forest team. They may not have the best resume out of all the schools there. You know, NC state's probably got the best win out of this group. I like this Wake Forest team a lot, but Saying, you know, someone other than Clemson to win the division, I maybe I know that's not the exercise here, but if I was going someone other than Clemson, it gets really uncomfortable because this division may end up looking a lot like the Coastal does, and the the champion may be a three-loss team in conference play. Now, will Clemson fall to that point? I don't know, but the offense is very bad, and it just cost them a game against NC State, who I'm not sure is the best team in the Atlanta division because, once again, I go back to I look at Wake Forest, they have handled everyone they have played. Now, granted, the schedule is not super difficult, but Virginia was able to throw up 39 on North Carolina. What does that even mean, considering Georgia Tech just beat North Carolina 45-22? to 22? I don't even know, but Wake Forest did just go on the road and beat a Bronco Mendenhall coach team 37-17. to 17. I like this Wake Forest team. They can score. You look at the schedule down the line here. They play Louisville. I think that's a win. They play Syracuse on the road. That one I also think should be a win. They've got Army on the road, who's undefeated, by the way. That one probably is going to be a tough game, especially at 11 a.m. They get Duke at home. Duke lost to Charlotte earlier this year. They bounced back since that week one. They're at 3-1, and one, but still, I think Wake Forest is a better team than them. And then they go on the road to North Carolina in November. They've got NC State at home in November, Clemson on the road in November, and Boston College on the road in November. Three out of their four games in November on the road. I mean, just think about that November stretch for Wake Forest. It's tough. North Carolina, NC State, Clemson, Boston College. They they should be looking at, I mean, they have a real opportunity to be undefeated going into that November game against North Carolina. Do they finish? I don't know. Because I still think that there's some quality teams there. I just think everybody just ends up beating up on each other. Champion's going to be two or three loss from the Atlantic. And it's going to, regardless, it's going to be a fun division. We got word from intern Belichick that, yes, the Iowa-Maryland matchup is on Friday. It's at Maryland. It's going to be at 7 p.m. on FS1. Upset potential. 
one hundred percent. I've got the the fighting Scott Van Pelts. Absolutely, yes. Let's go <laughs> the fighting Scott Van Pelts. I love it. We're gonna head to the phone lines now. Three three four three two one thirteen ninety. And Ryan is on the line with us. What's up, Ryan? Hey, how's it going? Doing all right. How are you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. Um, so I just had a question. I, I know you guys are talking about all the teams, but I, I sort of had an Auburn question. Hit so me. go for it. Uh, my question was, what do you, you know, with the Cornelius Williams situation, do you think this coaching hire was something that sort of maybe the, the boosters or powers that be at Auburn sort of forced upon Coach Harson? Um, and maybe, you know, this was an excuse to potentially get his guy in there. I just wanted to know your thoughts on that. Now, I've heard, I've heard more than one person speculate on that. Do I know if there's any legitimacy to it? I, I doubt it. But I would not leave it. I would not leave anything off the table because because again, well, there's a lot of stuff that we don't know. I would. It just seems odd. It would. To yeah. me. Why wide receivers coach? Sure, that's kind of what I'm thinking. I think it's definitely possible. Um, but it it would it would be an odd situation if it were to be true. But I'm not leaving it either on or off the table. Yeah, I mean, it just seems to me that like you brought a guy in with a pedigree that was an offensive coordinator, and he he came down to be. And an offensive analyst, I guess. And it just seems like that's a step back. And maybe it was like, well, maybe he's been in waiting the whole time. Right. You know, just waiting for the right moment. Yeah, I, anyways, I understand where, I appreciate I understand where you're I love coming from. I've, I've heard that. I have seen that. I've definitely seen that on threads on Twitter, people speculating about it. I don't know. It, it does kind of look... I know what you're saying, but I still just there's no way for us to know on that one. People like Cornelius Williams. There was a lot to like. I, I need to remind folks he's like Auburn's highest or was Auburn's highest ranked recruiter on 24/7 Sports. We had Barry McKnight, the Troy play-by-play announcer, on the show a couple of weeks ago or right before the season started. So I guess it's been over a month, and um, he just glowed about him. And I, you know, I know that the play hasn't been great from the receivers, but he's he's a young up-and-coming coach, and so. I, it just seems so bizarre to me that that there would be politics involved at the wide receiver coach position. I could see coordinators. Just wide receivers coach seems like the weird thing. Seems like a weird place to strong arm, right? It, it does, and and I guess you know, as a, from I guess from a personal standpoint, I, I sort of look at it like he was a young up and coming coach, and I would hate for that kind of situation to set him back in his career, right. um, unless he was just truly you know not doing a good job behind the scenes. And I guess we don't. We don't know that, and maybe we will learn over time, but I think the wide receiver core is so inexperienced anyways. I'm not sure that we're going to see a huge step forward. I doubt we're going to see a step back, but I don't think we're going to see some massive step forward in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, Yeah, and then I'll say something else about all the other coaches that he's hired. I mean, I think this is Brian Harson's staff because you look across the board, like these seem to be – these were a lot of these were outside-the-box hires. Nick Eason, outside-the-box hire – you talk about his guys that he's brought with him, Schmetting, Brad Bedell. The, the, a lot of these hires were kind of outside-the-box hires that I don't think we've seen Auburn make in the past. So I, I don't think that there's influence there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I love the show, guys, and thank you for taking my call today. Really appreciate, appreciate it, you calling in, Ryan. 334-321-1390 is the number to dial. Really appreciate Ryan uh, sharing his thoughts. If you've got any thoughts on, on on Cornelius Williams on Auburn, would love for you to call in, share your thoughts. I want to get back to this Atlantic division real quick, and I want to go to our uh, another headline that we have here in that same division. Florida State head coach Mike Norvell defended his program's 0-4 start yesterday. When will the Florida State Seminoles get a win this season? 
And if we're going to take a look at their schedule, and I want to ask you, Noah, if they're, where, where do the win, win comes from? We've got Syracuse at home this week, then at North Carolina, UMass, at Clemson, NC State, Miami, at Boston College, and at number 10, Florida. You look at that Massachusetts game, and you think, yeah, that's probably going to be a win. But outside of that, the way that Florida State's been playing four games into the year, I just really question, you know, is, is three and nine even a possibility? I like blacked out when you said UMass because I was like, well, I, didn't, I didn't even hear that part. <laughs> but I look across the schedule. Look, Syracuse just beat Liberty. They held Malik Willis to 21 points. Uh, Syracuse is trying to get to a bowl game. And if they beat Florida State, they're two wins away. And I'm not looking at the Syracuse schedule, but in the ACC, that's manageable, especially mm-hmm. in that division. But yeah, I, I, I think UMass is it, man. I really do. This Florida State team is bad. They're not just getting beat. They're getting handled. Jacksonville State, you know, beats them 20 to 17. That's not a good look. They respond by losing by 21 to Wake Forest. Wasn't even close. Now, after that, they lose by eight to Louisville, who's still just so-so. Syracuse is good enough to beat them. Florida State is favored by four and a half. It's at their place. This kind of, for me, this will tell you where it's at. Like, are these guys still fighting? Are they still, or is this about to be like 2012 Auburn where everything just crumbles and they can't beat anybody? Because that's what happened in 2012 for Auburn. This is like in 2012 for Auburn when Auburn played Arkansas. And you know those were the two worst teams in the league, or in that division rather, in the SEC West that year. And whoever won, like, that, that you know, and, and neither team was good that year, but like you knew that whoever lost that game, like it was going to be a horrible year. And that was kind of the fork in the road. That's this game, Florida State-Syracuse. Because Syracuse is the other bad team in that division, second to last. But whoever wins this game, I mean, Florida State's still not going bowling. But Syracuse, if they win it, they still can go to a bowl game. Florida State, you kind of wonder if it's too far gone at this point. Right, and and, and I would I would go as far as to say, while 20, 2012 Auburn was awful, this almost feels even worse. Because you look at that Syracuse game, you know, I think they can win it. Obviously, they're favored. You look at the UMass game as a win, but that's 2-10, and I'm not so confident that they can even beat Syracuse with the way that they're playing right now. Like you mentioned, this Florida State team has just been absolutely horrendous in a division that has been just kind of all over the place. Uh, they, they've been the clear, feels like the clear losers of the division. Yeah, and they're 0-2 in conference play too. So, like, you get to non-conference play for Florida State. Like, sure, they play, they play UMass, but like, once again, bowl game is off the table. Nobody's questioning that, but a brutal non-conference schedule didn't help them when you're playing Notre Dame and you're playing Florida. You're playing Florida every year, but then you add Notre Dame on top of it. So that now all of a sudden puts you in a position where you have to win four conference games in order to get there. And I still don't think this Florida State program is at a place to where they can achieve that. Um, even coming into the year, I don't I don't think that they were at that spot. So this is I, I'm I, I wonder if this is the end of the line for Mike Norvell. When you start to get these coaches that get into these press conferences and they're having to start to defend like oh and four starts and they're you know talking about hey it's going to get better you know i'm I'm proud of our work ethic blah 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 but then you don't end up winning it kind of feels like eh, this this is it another headline here the atlanta braves and the philadelphia phillies begin a pivotal series tonight atlanta you look at the division the nl east two and a half games ahead phillies two and a half games behind it is crucial and I mean crucial that Atlanta takes this series because the Phillies, after this game, or after this series, rather, they get three games against the Marlins. And uh, 
Atlanta has to play the Mets, and if Atlanta loses this series, they could lose the division. It's incredibly important that they win at least two out of the next three. You want to hear a fun stat? Hit me. The Braves are plus 121 this year in run differential. The Phillies are minus five. <laughs> oh, man. And the Phillies are 81 and 75 on the year. Now, granted, the Braves, you know, obviously were below 500 for a large portion of this year, but you knew they were better than what the record suggested. That just for for one reason or another could just never get above 500. Since they got above 500, they haven't looked back. But Braves' home record this year, 37 and 37. You got to defend your your field better than that. And it's a home series here. Like you've got to win. You've got to win at least one. If you get swept, you've lost the divisional lead. You've lost it. If you win at least one, you still at least have the divisional lead going into the final series against the New York Mets for three games here in this next month of October at the end of this week. But you're right. I mean, there's no other way to write it. It's a pivotal series. Braves, Phillies, you need to win at least one. If you win two, you look really good for making the playoffs going into that last series. I mean, you win the series, you, you look really you look really good. You lose the series, but you still win one game. You still at least have the divisional lead going into the last the last series of play against the Mets. If you lose all three, you've lost control. Now you're hoping for the Phillies to lose. But either way, nothing's going to be decided after the after these three games. But if you were to go out there and sweep the Phillies here, it's it's over. Like the the Braves have a real chance here to put the ball game away. I've said this. It's kind of like an analogy where now the, going into this Padre series, it was like the Braves were on defense. Up by three, they were, on, they were on defense in the fourth quarter. Phillies have been driving. You had to get a stop. The Braves stopped it. They went. They swept the Padres. They won all three games. Braves have won like six of their last seven, seven of their last eight, something like that. And it has stopped or at least held at bay the surge from the Philadelphia Phillies, which now is at two and a half games. The Phillies got back into it. But at least the Braves now have the ball back, right? Like in this football analogy, the Braves have the football back. Now it's up to them to go and put the game away. Can they go down there and score that touchdown to put the game away and go up by two scores? That's the situation you're at right now. It's in your hands. You can't blame anyone but yourself. You're fortunate to even be in this situation with the way that you started the season, losing series to the Phillies, the Marlins, the Nationals, left and right. Go and make the most of it right here on your home field. Games tonight, 620 FS1. It's going to be a fantastic game tonight. We'll definitely be tuning in to that matchup. I know we didn't get to do what's on TV tonight, uh, but it, that is what's on television tonight. That is what you should be sitting down and you should be watching. A fantastic game between the Braves and the Phillies. It's going down to the wire. The division lead and the NL East. Final headline here before we get to break. The Cowboys clobbered the Eagles on Monday Night Football yesterday, 41-21. I watched half of this game. The only reason I watched half of it, not the entire game, is because the first quarter literally took an hour it, it, there were just penalties galore. It was all over the place. They kept having to go to commercial break because of different things and challenges and stuff like that. You saw everything that you needed to see in that first quarter. But Jalen Hurts, I think kind of my, my biggest takeaway from this game is Jalen Hurts uh, has not been the answer for Philadelphia so far. And I just wonder if he's that long-term guy for them, if he's talented enough uh, to get over, get over the hump. Dak looked fantastic. Uh, the offense looked good, but Philadelphia, is Jalen Hurts the number one guy moving forward? I just don't know yet. One of these quarterbacks was 25 of 39 for 326 yards, two touchdowns and two picks. One of these quarterbacks was 21 of 26 for 238 yards and three touchdowns. Those are vastly different. 
those are vastly different stat lines for these two QBs. First of all, Dak Prescott was a quarterback who was nearly perfect, 21 of 26, excellent completion percentage. Now, he didn't have to throw the ball as much as Jalen Hurts did because his team had the lead. So you're just not going to throw the ball as much. You're going to be running the ball more to turn more of that clock. But still, he made the most of his opportunities. He was super efficient, had three touchdowns. Dak Prescott has proven time and time again that he can make the throws. He's also proven that he's clutch in close games and that he can drive his team down the field and give them a chance to win. Dak Prescott, Dallas Cowboys, this is their division. You look across the board, every other team is still looking for a quarterback that can make the throws when it counts to win you the tight, tough football games. And Jalen Hurts threw for 326 yards. He had two touchdowns. He also had two picks. He also wasn't overly efficient. He was 25 for 39. There's just Hurts has athleticism. He can he 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 is a decent quarterback, but he's still not quite there as a passer. And that's not me saying that he won't get there but he's still not quite there as a passer to be able to make those tight window throws to be able to make those quick judgments out of the pocket and to be able to decisively and accurately place balls into tight windows. You can watch the quarterbacks that are different. If you watch Sunday night football with Aaron Rodgers, he's a quarterback that does this. Drew Brees did it. Tom Brady does it. The best quarterbacks do this. There are windows. They're like you and I, as the average fan at home, when we're watching, they're like, that's not open. But then those quarterbacks throw it open or they throw a perfect ball into a gap between a safety and a linebacker. And you're thinking to yourself, how did that guy possess the touch to be able to teardrop that football in still with enough velocity, though, to where he's not throwing a duck, but he's also not, you know, throwing it so level that the linebacker can pick it off. I mean, it's near perfect throws. And Jalen Hurts at this point has not shown in his career that he can do that with consistency. And until he does. The Eagles will not be the best team in this division as long as Dak Prescott is running the Cowboys the way he is. As long as he is healthy, this is the Cowboys division. On the other side of this break, we take a look at the AP Top 25 poll. Auburn hangs in at number 22. Going to take a look at the rest of the poll. Stick with us. Lance Dawn, Noah Gardner here with you on ESPN 106.7 and Fox Sports Central Alabama. Like we tease coming into this segment, we're going to take a look at the top 25. Auburn hanging in at number 22. Going to run down the rankings. But first, Noah, question I wanted to ask you. Again, like I mentioned, Auburn moving up one spot after a really confusing game against Georgia State. Should Auburn be ranked at this point? Yes. Everywhere else in college football, every every other team at this point is dealing with major issues. Auburn is... Three and one, they just struggled against a, a bad football team. Yeah, so is Fresno State. They're four and one. Now, the difference between Fresno State and Auburn is that Fresno State did beat a ranked and a highly ranked UCLA team, but I, I still think there are, there's just not enough teams to rank right now. And I think we're all running into that issue when me, and, when me you, Sting, and, and we're all putting together our rankings every week. When we're doing that, we're just running out of teams to rank. I did this week. I got to 24, and I did not know who to put. I got to 24, and I was like, I don't think NC State's a top 25 team after what I saw for them against Mississippi State. I don't think Clemson's a top 25 team right now either. I omitted both of those squads from my rankings. I just want somebody to look impressive. And Right now, everywhere, nobody looks impressive. And so I think Auburn should still be ranked until they lose until they show you otherwise, like when they lose, fine, drop them. If, if that's what you want to do. If they lose to LSU this week, drop them. 
But if they beat LSU on the road at 8 p.m. in Death Valley, I think that just further legitimizes them in the rankings. Now, would they be a top 20 team after this week? I don't know. How does Auburn look in this game against LSU? That all factors into it. But one game against Georgia State is not going to be enough for me to drop Auburn. Also, you run into the issue. You you do not have enough teams to rank at this point. Yeah, exactly. It, It was really difficult for me as well. Uh, at the uh, whenever I was doing my poll, how to rank like the the last seven or eight teams in the poll, I did eventually end up ranking NC State of Cl- in Clemson. Although I did sit there for a while and debate whether or not I truly thought that they deserved to be in the top twenty five. Uh, but yeah, it's been it was really difficult to rank. I'm gonna run through the rankings here real quick. Y'all just bear with me, and I want to get your your impressions from the poll. No, I'm sure there's some things we can take away from it. Just some uh, different uh, different opinions here. Number one, Alabama. Number two, Georgia. Number three, Oregon. Number four, Penn State. Number five, Iowa. Number six, Oklahoma. Number seven, Cincinnati. Number eight, Arkansas. At number nine, we have Notre Dame. Ten, Florida. Eleven, Ohio State. Twelve, Ole Miss. Thirteen, BYU. Fourteen, Michigan. Rounding out the top 20, 15, rather, Texas A&M. At number 16, we have Coastal Carolina. Michigan State at 17. Fresno State moved up four spots to 18. Oklahoma State, after being unranked last week, move up nine spots to number 19. Number 20, UCLA. Baylor stayed where they were at at number 21. Auburn moved up a spot, like we mentioned, to number 22. NC State stayed where they were at at number 23. Wake Forest moved up to number 24. And Clemson dropped 16 spots to number 25. Overall impressions from this poll, uh, Noah? I think it's everybody's best shot you know I I think I start to get some objections I have some objections when you get to 18 through 25 with what they've put together I think Texas even maybe after what they've done these last two weeks in the quarterback change Mm -hmm. maybe I'm falsely putting my my faith back into the Longhorns but um, Texas is a team right outside they're at 26 in the AP poll they're receiving 131 votes at seven behind Clemson I honestly would like to see Texas in this in this week's rankings, but that's not a big deal. I think everybody abandoned Arizona State maybe a little bit too quickly. If we feel confident enough to say that BYU is the 13th best team in the country, why in the world is Arizona State in the 30s in these rankings when that was the only team that they lost to? That that I think that's a question. Like there there's some inconsistencies, but it's it's from 18 through 25 that's not a big deal because everything will the, everything will shake out eventually and at this point and I know I've been saying this for a while don't overreact but at this point just undefeated teams end up climbing inside the top 15 because that's what you have to do with how weird this year has been I don't think that you're five on right now I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there with number five with Iowa and on and the AP top 25 does not look good at football right now yeah, and I would look at, at Alabama, Georgia. If I were to rank the poll, Alabama, Georgia, everyone else just depends on the day, I guess. If, if, if I were to rank it, like if that's how I truly felt about it, I agree with you. Not a lot of teams right now are playing solid football. And like you mentioned at the, to start the segment, I just want to see somebody play good. I just want to see somebody play, be consistent outside of Alabama and Georgia. At five, Iowa, again, we talk about that Maryland game. I just question whether or not the Hawkeyes are truly – capable of being the fifth best team in america oklahoma moved down two spots after uh, barely beating west virginia we're going to talk about that in the next segment actually going to continue our saturday takeaways going to break down some different games that happened over the weekend but yeah outside of really the top four or five 
Not a lot of teams playing great football. On the other side of this break, again, going to look at our Saturday takeaways. Stick with us. Back on the line, Lance Dahl and Noah Gardner here with you. ESPN 106.7, Fox Sports Central Alabama. Really appreciate intern Belichick holding things down at the controls. Like we mentioned before we went to break, want to take a look at some of these other Saturday games that happened this past weekend. And I want to start with this Oklahoma-West Virginia game. This was really, really late. I only got to catch the fourth quarter of this game. I had just gotten home. Uh, I did. I, I was uh, doing after the game here on ESPN 106.7 with Dan Peck. Fantastic show. Really enjoyed hanging out at Sky Bar Cafe with him. But I got to catch the end of this game, and there were some chants from the Oklahoma uh, fans calling for their backup quarterback uh, because they were uh, dissatisfied with Spencer Rattler. 26 of 36, 256 yards, one touchdown, a pick for Rattler. Final score, 16-13, to 13, Oklahoma won on a walk-off field goal. Do we think, Noah, that Oklahoma, after being bumped down two spots at number six, should they be lower, or is that number six kind of where we're thinking they, they should be at right now? Um, I think I had them at five when I ranked them amongst ourselves for our show rankings. I think I have them at five, and some folks may think that that's way too high based off where they're playing right now and how they're playing right now, but once again, I do go back to nobody's really playing well right now, and they're finding ways to win. West Virginia did just beat a top 25 team at Virginia Tech. They looked good doing it. Nebraska's clearly better. They pushed Michigan State, but nobody's angry with Michigan State right now. Nobody's saying, oh, no, that 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 that's not okay that Michigan State barely beat Nebraska. Honestly, Michigan State was on the brink, you know? Um, and Michigan State, in fact, is receiving a lot of love. Now, granted, they're up to 15, which is a vastly different place in the rankings than six, and we expect a little bit more out of Oklahoma than we do at Michigan State based off of where they're ranked at. But after what we saw last year from Oklahoma and the fact that they were 2-2 two and two at one point on the verge of going and losing three games in a row for the first time in a very long time, and then they didn't, and they turned it on and they became the best team in the Big 12, and we're a vastly different team than they were in the first four games. Oklahoma's played four games right now. It seems like they have had a different issue at different intervals. In their first week, it wasn't the offense that was the issue. It was that defense. But now we have figured out that maybe Tulane isn't as good of an American team as maybe we thought they were after the first week. And then you look at the last two weeks, the offense just, just isn't clicking. But what is the defense, which is which has obviously improved, from giving up 35 against Tulane. Right. So whereas one problem was was fixed, the other uh, a new one has risen. At some point, I think things are going to click for Oklahoma. There is talent here, and when it does, what does it look like? They get to play Kansas State on the road, what I've called the proverbial traffic cone for Oklahoma year in and year out because this is the game that just trips them up and it ends like any hope it feels like for them to win a national championship. That and Iowa State. If they beat Kansas State on the road, which Oklahoma's favored by 10.5 right now, that's probably more of an indication of where Kansas State is at with an injury at the quarterback position. After that, they've got Texas in the Cotton Bowl. That's going to be a great football game, by the way. Oklahoma-Texas is going to be phenomenal. But if they win these next two games and they look pretty good doing it, there's a lot of reason, I think, to still buy into this Oklahoma squad. I'm, I'm not bailing on them just yet just because they've got some struggles because we saw those same struggles last year after four games and they fixed it 
you look at that Tulane game now, especially it being week one, I think it's very similar to what we saw against Georgia State with Auburn. Just kind of feels like an anomaly, right? Because now through four games, you kind of have gotten at least a little bit of an idea of what some of these teams are good at, what they're not good at, and you see the Oklahoma defense rebound from, from those issues. And like you mentioned, you expect the Sooners to rebound. I expect Auburn to rebound as well. I think it's a very similar situation to there. Now, is Auburn a top 10, top 6 team in the country? I don't think so, at least not right now. But I do think that they're going to be able to get back on track. Uh, and, and like you mentioned with Oklahoma, they win these next two games, Kansas State, Texas. They, they've got it all still out right there in front of them. Moving on to our next game, NC State 27, Clemson 21. This one was in double overtime. Big Cinco couldn't get it done for Clemson. And I begin to wonder... Like we talked about earlier, what on earth does this division look like? What does Clemson look like moving forward? Is there another loss on this schedule? It's just not been Clemson's year, uh, and it's been really, really tough for uh, DJ Uyunglele. So I have a question for you. Was this NC State's best swing that they could throw this year? Was this the best punch that NC State could throw this year? When you look at the performance that they had, at least statistically, I mean – for uh, for Devin Leary, their quarterback, to throw four, four touchdowns, no interceptions, and for them to take this one to double overtime, it feels like one of the best punches that they could throw. Uh, and you look at the you look at the fact what the the game plan I feel like really worked. They had 42 minutes in terms of time of possession, and they were 11 of 21 on third down compared to Clemson's two of 11. I'm, it feels like. Everything went their way this game. I would say, yeah, I would say it's probably the best punch they could have, could have thrown. If they can't replicate this on a week-to-week basis, then there's more losses on the schedule for NC State. And I'm not saying that what they did wasn't impressive against Clemson, and I'm happy they did it because now you know, we're not going to see Clemson in a playoff again, which is going to be refreshing. We're going to have a different playoff this year. you know. But you look at it, they had 31 first downs. To Clemson's 10. 10. Clemson had 10 first downs. Game still Clemson went to double overtime. What was that? It's still the game still went to double overtime, which is wild to me. Yes. And then 214 total yards from Clemson. Get a load of these penalty statistics. There were 24 penalties between the two teams. Clemson had 13 for 94 yards, and NC State had 11 for 105. Just because NC State beat Clemson does not mean that all of a sudden this team's better than everybody else in that division and that they're without issues. I, I'm okay with folks ranking them and whatnot, but, I mean, you said it, 31 first downs to 10 for Clemson, and this thing still went to double overtime, and I think that this may have been one of the best punches that NC State could throw this year. If that's the case, the other NC State that we've seen this year is one that lost 24 to 10 to Mississippi State. Right. That has looked bad the last two weeks. So where does NC State still fall in the ACC Atlantic hierarchy? And then also that begs the question, where does Clemson fall in the ACC Atlantic hierarchy? Because right now it is alphabet soup and just a bunch of jumbled teams. And I, it's, it doesn't even matter at this point because whoever's coming out, like uh, this is going to be the nastiest ACC championship game that I can remember. I am so looking forward to Wake Forest, Georgia Tech, come December. This is going to be excellent. <laughs> it's going to be fantastic. I didn't mean to interu- uh, interrupt you earlier. I apologize. But to your point, like you were saying, yeah, you look up and down the final stats from this game and you think, wow, NC State should have blown this team out. But then you look up, it went to double overtime 
And so that's kind of what I'm thinking as far as like, was this the best this team could have possibly done? I think so. It's the reason why I still had Clemson ranked a spot ahead of NC State in my poll. I think Clemson is still talented. And at the end of the day, I don't think it's you can drop a team 16 spots to number 25 on just a given day. That just doesn't happen very often. If you give Clemson another shot to play this game, I think they win it. Um, but but yeah, I just don't know what the ACC hierarchy looks at looks like right now. It's going to be incredibly wild. You mentioned Georgia Tech. I want to get to that game. Georgia well, hold, Tech, hold North on a Carolina. I got one fun question for you about Clemson before we move on to that next game. Go ahead. Clemson's next four games. They're at home against Boston College this Saturday. They take a week off, then they'll go to the Carrier Dome and play Syracuse on the road. Then they're on the road against Pittsburgh, and then they host Florida State. How many wins there for Clemson over the next four games? Do they lose again? I think they do. I think that there's at least one loss in those four games. I'm looking at that Pittsburgh game right now, but Boston College, we saw what they looked like against Missouri. I mean, we thought that offense was not going to be able to pick it up after seeing what their what their quarterback did, but they were able to uh, to to get it done against Missouri. I think that there's at least one loss in those next four games. Fun stat there. Fun stat here. You mentioned Pittsburgh. Pick it for Pittsburgh. 15 touchdowns, one pick, 1,342 yards. It's playing like some one of the best quarterbacks in the country right now. Now Pittsburgh hasn't played a tough schedule either. They played New Hampshire, Western Michigan, Tennessee, and UMass. It's kind of hard not to look like that, but I like that you picked that one on the road. Pittsburgh has done it before. And there's definitely a shot for them to do it again this year, especially if that offense is able to keep up. And I, I, I think I genuinely believe that they will. Uh, moving on to the Georgia Tech-North Carolina game, Georgia Tech just ran away with this one, 45-22. Was not expecting this performance from, uh, from Jeff Collins and this Georgia Tech team. I thought that they were on the right track. I kind of joked about it in the offseason, uh, right before the season started, about Georgia Tech can make a bowl game. Was that, was that, did I really believe that? I don't, I don't really think so. But to see a game like this go their way and for NC State's defense to just kind of collapse like they did, again, the, the ACC, man, it, it's worse than what the Big 12 has done in the past, right? When they shoot themselves in the foot. I mean, this is just, it's, it's, it's bizarre to me. It is a microcosm. Georgia Tech's season is a microcosm of college football. They lost to Northern Illinois at home, not on the road, at home. They lost to Northern Illinois week one, 22 to 21. Four weeks later, they beat a ranked North Carolina team, 45 to 22, and it was a massacre. That is a microcosm of this year's college football. And it's a shame that they lost to North to Northern Illinois week one. There's still a lot of time for these guys to get to a bowl game, and I do think they're good enough to. But uh, if they had beat Northern Illinois, you only need three more wins. And you can find that. And I think there are still tough teams, though, left to play like Pittsburgh. Like Pittsburgh's still favored this weekend against Georgia Tech in Georgia Tech's house. Favored by three and a half. They still get Duke on the road. I think that's winnable. You got Virginia on the road. That's winnable. But you still have to play Notre Dame. You're playing Notre Dame on November 20th. You know, I mean, like, this is going to be very difficult for, for Georgia Tech to get to a bowl game still. But much improved and a microcosm for college football this year is Georgia Tech's season. Like, I mean, this is just... College football in a nutshell. And the question for me also is, man, what happened to North Carolina? I mean, that, that we would assume, where we, we did assume, that the offense would be enough to carry this team through the season. 
but uh, the defense has just not not been there the past couple of games, and I and I think that there's a lot of wins left still on their schedule. You play Duke, Florida State, you got you got Wofford, Pittsburgh. It, it, all the, a lot of these games are winnable. Miami's winnable as well, but the the defense man has just not been there. I don't think the offense has totally been there either. You know, I mean, obviously 45, it's easy to look at the defense here and say, and, and I'm glad that you pointed out because that is a big issue. I mean, they, they gave up 39 to Virginia. They just gave up 45 to Georgia Tech. But you also look at the offense. They ran the ball mm -hmm. for 1.8 yards per carry against Georgia Tech. They ran the ball 35 times for 1.8 yards per carry. That is pitiful. And Sam Howell had a decent game. He was 25 for 39 for 306 yards, two touchdowns, no picks. Had a pretty decent game. Passing game is not necessarily the issue here. Average 12.2 yards per reception, so not terrible. They're still able to stretch the field a little bit. Not as much maybe as they're wanting to, but they still had, you know, they, they had some big plays. And then they, you know, had to march it down the field solely, though, on their passing game. That's it. You can't rush for 1.8 yards per carry and expect to win on a consistent basis. This is another example of a team that has a different issue every single week, but consistently defense is a problem. Yep. Got one more game here before we go to break. Notre Dame, Wisconsin. Wisconsin was winning this game heading into the fourth quarter, 13 to 10. But Keyword Notre Dame. Was. Do what? Keyword was was. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> the word there is was because Notre Dame, a 31 point fourth quarter, blew the doors off of Wisconsin in the last 15 minutes, 41 to 13, the final score. Man, come on, Wisconsin. I thought Graham Mertz. It feels like has single-handedly just killed this Wisconsin team. Four interceptions against Notre Dame. This is the, we've we've asked this question a few times on the show throughout the season, and I want to ask you, Noah: Is this a Notre Dame is so good, or is this a Wisconsin is just not able to piece it together? We've asked this question before: Is like, well, did the winning team are they just that impressive, or is the losing team on a good day better than what the performance that they gave on the weekend was? It's a little bit of both. I do yep. think Notre Dame is getting better. And I said that this past week before we paid the M. I said, I think they're getting better. You look at the two quarterbacks. I, I don't love either of them, but I think one stretches the field a little bit better than the other. And that's why I went with Notre Dame. Now, granted, I was wrong on my other big picks this past weekend. So I really didn't make any ground on you guys, but um, I at least saw through this one and Jack Cohn, he made the difference. I mean, that literally was it. Jack Cohn didn't turn the ball over. He was 15 for 29 for 158 yards, but he had a big touchdown pass at the end of the first half. That was a momentum booster for this Notre Dame team. It got them up 10 to three. They, they, they were in the ball game at that point. It resurrected their hopes. Whereas it was still just a battle between the twenties where neither of these two teams could score. This game was very similar to that Penn state, Wisconsin game where neither offense looked like they wanted to do anything, but a big play here or there, was enough to be the difference and then a huge fourth quarter where Notre Dame finally broke through I, I mean their leading rusher for Notre Dame was 18 carries for 33 yards Kyron Williams was I mean it's not like Notre Dame just like torched them from a yardage standpoint in fact Wisconsin outgained Notre Dame 318 yards to 248 in fact Wisconsin outpassed Notre Dame 240 yards to 239 Rushing, they outgained Wisconsin outgained Notre Dame 78 to 9. Notre Dame had nine rushing yards. Thanks, college football, for counting sacks as rushing yards. Like that needs to change. Eleven penalties on Notre Dame for 93 yards. Wisconsin had five for 33. Here's the difference. Five turnovers on Wisconsin, 
four of them came from Graham Mertz. And two of, them, there. two of them were pick sixes at the end of the game. With literally less than three minutes to go, there were two pick sixes for Notre Dame. So while I, the score is deceiving, not like Notre Dame, you know, just destroyed them in terms of, you know, just moving up and down the field at will, like 41 to 13 would make you think. But I do think they're getting better. And Wisconsin still is a tough team to beat, but their offense is atrocious. Defense is there. Offense is atrocious. That's going to cost them more games this year. You look at Notre Dame moving forward now. They play an undefeated Cincinnati team. One of these teams gets eliminated from the playoff this week. The other one, their hopes stay alive. If Notre Dame wins this game, they've got to go to Virginia Tech. We all saw what Virginia Tech did to North Carolina earlier this year. I could totally see Notre Dame just scoring 10 points on Virginia Tech on the road at their place. I could totally see that. That's 630. You're going to have Sandman playing. That place is going to be crazy. I could totally see Jack Cohen having a bad game and Notre Dame only scoring 10. After that, you get to host USC. USC looks like they have a little bit more energy, but at the same time, I still think Notre Dame's a better team there. They get to host North Carolina. Who knows? Maybe Sam Howell throws for 450 yards and eight touchdowns, but they still only run for 1.8 yards per carry, and, and, and it ends up being you know, an actually a close football game. There's still losses on the schedule for Notre Dame after this Cincinnati game, but one thing is for sure, whoever loses this game, they're out of playoff contention. Come on, Cincinnati. Come on. Let's see. Let's let's see it happen. On the other side of this break, we wrap up the show. Wrapping up the Tuesday edition of On the Line, Lance Dawn, Noah Gardner here with you on ESPN 106.7 and Fox Sports Central Alabama. Been a pretty good show today. If you missed any of it, go and find the podcast wherever you get your podcast: Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio. We are there. Want to wrap up the show, taking a look at some more Saturday takeaways from the weekend. Finished up talking about Notre Dame, Wisconsin, what Notre Dame schedule looks like moving forward. Got to talk a little Clemson there. What does the ACC look like moving forward? Want to switch over to the Big Ten here. And I want to get, you mentioned it a little bit earlier, Noah, Michigan State, Nebraska. And this is a team in Michigan State that I'm still really high on. I had them at number 14 uh, in my poll, in, in, in our on-the-line poll that we did earlier uh, earlier this week. We're going to have that uh, tomorrow. We're going to break that down for you on tomorrow's show. But Nebraska, after starting the season off with a loss against Illinois, since then has looked competitive. They looked like they've gone out there and they look like they've actually cared about playing football. And this Michigan State team continues to find ways to win is it going to come to an end at some point? Probably, but I like where they're heading right now. Well, it's not going to come to an end this week, although I do think Western Kentucky has the offense to where if you're looking for an interesting game this week that is flying under the radar, Michigan State's only favored by 10.5 over a 1-2 and two Western Kentucky squad, 41.7 points per game for Western Kentucky, but they're still giving up nearly 31 on the other side of the ball. The old Miss of the Conference USA, right? And Western Kentucky, last time they were out, they almost beat Indiana. It was 33-31. to 31. So we know they have the quality to push a good football team. They almost beat Army, 38-35. to 35. The last two games they have played, extremely close. We know they have the quality to push Michigan State here. Defensive standpoint, this is where I see the matchup. Pass yards allowed per game for Michigan State, 264. 
Western Kentucky averaging 426 pass yards per game. Now, this could go one of two ways because Western Kentucky is kind of air raid here. This could go one of two ways. This could go bad version of Mike Leach offense. This could go good version of Mike Leach offense. This could Your passing game could click on all cylinders, give you a chance to win this game. You could be scoring at will. Or you could have three straight incompletions, be off the field, and then Michigan State's going to control the clock. They're going to put the ball on the ground, and they're going to beat you in between the tackles, which Michigan State should be able to do. But if Western Kentucky can avoid three and outs, they're going to have a shot in this ballgame to make it very interesting. So if you're kind of looking for an under-the-radar game, that one is one. As far as matchups are concerned, though, over their next three games, including Western Kentucky, Rutgers is a road game, Indiana as well. They'll match up pretty well against those teams. And it feels like that Michigan State-Western Kentucky game, based on how college football has gone so far this year, feels like the perfect game to look at it at the end of the day and be like, wait, Michigan State lost by how much? It, just, it, it could potentially be a wild upset. That's going to do it for the Tuesday edition of On the Line tomorrow. We've got Report Wednesday. We've got our On the Line poll. We'll see you guys tomorrow.